Hello? Hello. Hey, how are you? Good. How are you doing, Stephen? Good. It's been a long time, man. Yeah, it has. Sorry. It's been so long. No. Alright, welcome to this special episode of Writing Questions that I made especially for my engineering students in which we hear from a working engineer about his writing life. Alright, so you recording now? Yeah, yeah, I'm good. Great. Okay, so that voice you just heard is my wife's cousin. Uh, He lives in Seattle and he works as an electrical engineer for sound equipment companies. My name is David Hurlbut. I'm an electrical design engineer for a company called Loud Technologies. We make audio equipment. I primarily focus on digital embedded systems in mixers. What's, you say some, one of your products is on the shelf. Like what, what is out there that we could like Google and find? Oh, sure. So I, I primarily work for a, a brand called Mackie. They make a series of digital mixers that have a model number that starts with a DL. So there's DL... 32R, DL1608. Um, there's another one called the DC16, which is actually just a big control surface. Um, I've worked on all these things and was uh, highly integrated in all of them. Okay. You can Google those and you can go find them in like, you know, a guitar center type store, or things like that. What you're going to hear in the next 40 minutes or so is my interview with David about what writing looks like for him. Um, We get into the nitty-gritty nuts and bolts of what he writes, when he writes, and to whom and to how. In the first part of the interview, he walks me through the process of figuring out how they test and approve the different parts of a product that eventually get combined into the final product. After that, we talk about some difficulties of getting writing done, and then what David would tell himself if he could go back and talk to himself as a burgeoning engineer. Okay, cool. Um... Yeah, let's start with this question then. So what's the kind of stuff that comes across your desk that you have to deal with and think about? I would say that I don't get a lot of stuff coming to me. I'm the one that sort of generates information and generates reports and operating procedures and things like that. Okay. My my design, my specific design team is somewhat small. So I have the benefit of designing my own tests, documenting how they should be done. And also carrying them out and writing up a report describing the results of a test. Wow. And I, I try to get as much feedback on each of these steps as I can because I, th- I feel like the peer review process is very important because it's easy to miss something when you're the one carrying out all of these steps. So I guess let me ask this. What, what are the kind of things that you're testing? It's a variety of things, but uh, a good example would be I recently had to evaluate a power supply we were buying off the shelf. Um, We weren't going to design a power supply ourselves. We just wanted to buy one from some third-party company to integrate into our product. It's faster, usually cheaper. Um, You don't have to worry about design time, things like that. So, but when you get a, when you get a power supply, you still have to evaluate it and make sure it actually does what this company says it will. And so you need to, put it through stress tests and environmental tests, make sure it meets all of your requirements. And it gets, um, it gets a little bit, uh, it's a very detailed process and I can't say it's actually very interesting, but, uh, it's necessary. Well, there's, there's safe, there's safety concerns and things like that. This podcast is going to be especially for engineering students. So 
Don't okay. Don't 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 assume that they're not going to be interested. They're pretty nerdy kids. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. Um, so let me see. Let me see if I can wrap my head around this. So your company uh, is creating a product, designing a product, and there's a lot of components that go into that product. And so you have to kind of figure out where they're coming from and then test them individually to make sure they're going to work with all the rest of the components and everything so that you can have a finished product that you end up selling, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Okay, cool. So let's go with this, this power supply thing. Um, I guess, so yeah. So what does writing look like for that project? And kind of give me like a chronological start to start to finish uh, story of of what this power supply process looks like and then what the writing is that you do for that. Sure. The process is fairly straightforward. So I'll, I'll skip the step where you've done, uh, actually maybe, maybe you might be interested, but it usually at the very beginning, it starts with a requirements document. Yeah, no, I want to hear about that. Yeah. Okay. You, you do. Okay. Yeah. So, so, just, so, yeah. so imagine I haven't even, I don't even have any power supplies yet. Okay. I have to go shopping. Right. So at my company and most companies, I think you'll have, um, like a, a procurement department, you know, some buyers, and they may or may not be technically oriented. So you have to write a document saying exactly what you need. What are you looking for in a power supply? And you need to list things out, list things out like, you know, I need this input voltage because it's going to work in these countries all over the world. You know, is it going to be, you know, 115 or 220? And what what's the input frequency? Is it 50 hertz, 60 hertz? Um, and then what do you need for your output? Is it a is it an AC output? Is it a DC output? Um, how many outputs do you need? Do you, do you want 5 volts and 12 volts, 7 volts? You have to specify all this out. You have to say um, all the certifications that you require, whether or not the power supply can contain lead or not, usually not these days. Um, wow. And... So, so you have you have to get you have to get very specific. Is this a is this a form you're filling out that's like got all these boxes you're either checking or not checking, or are you writing this document from scratch, saying that you need? Um, a lot of this work comes from pre-existing documents, because usually this is not the first time you've had to shop for something. So it's a, maybe not a form, but it's more of a template. But it it sort of is up to the engineer to come up with all of the things and try to imagine the problems you might have and how you can solve them before they become problems. Okay. And does your knowledge of that just come from experience then of like things you've run into or did you specifically study that kind of stuff in school or, or how, how, do, how do you know what to anticipate? There are certain things that I learned in school that were helpful. A lot of it does come from experience, but not all of it. Um, certain things like um does the does the power supply need to have power factor correction and that's something you should hopefully understand by the time you graduate mm. um and you should know if you need it or not it's just has to do with efficiency and things like that okay okay so um so you've gathered that all together you've kind of looked at old version what is it called a requirements document yeah Okay. It's not a formal, not a formal thing. Right. So, so you would take this document. Um, once you've listed out exactly what you need, you would send that off to to your buying department, your purchasers, and they hopefully, at least at my company, they go shopping. They have a list of suppliers, you know, companies who make power supplies, and they they give them this list of requirements and say, "What do you got? 
that matches these requirements or what's your closest fit, you know, and then they'll, the buyers will send me back some data sheets that I'll review. And if I like it, then I can request samples or we might have to buy samples. And then the evaluation process can start once I receive physical samples. Is there ever uh, like an iteration process with this document for your procurement? Uh, sometimes. Uh, it's possible that you have written a requirements document for something that doesn't exist. You know, okay. you can say, I want a power supply with all of these features and it's just not realistic. There's nothing out there that exists. Okay. Um, hopefully you don't do that, but you know, the, you, you do sort of have to tailor your requirements document for your audience. You have to be specific enough to get what you want, but also leave it loose enough that you can get lots of results. So you have lots of sources to choose from. Okay. So it kind of sounds like there's two levels of audience for this requirements document too. There's like your procurement part of your company, but then there's also whoever they send it out to that you have to be considering right. as well. Yep. Yeah. And and that and that probably varies company to company. Yeah. All right. Okay. So let's say you've uh, sent out the requirements document. They found your thing, or I guess do they do they choose several and and they give you those and then you begin testing with that, or do you choose one and then and and start testing with just one? Um, usually, for something like this, and it, I feel like in most cases you want as many options as possible. Um, you, it's in your best interest to have multiple sources if you can have them, mm -hmm. and. And so you, you just sort of amass as much information as possible, and then you can start narrowing it down based on, well, this one's better, but this one's cheaper. Um, this one doesn't have this feature we really need. And so you can start eliminating things. Um, and you can do some of that just based on paper. But um, so do you, you really do need, to get, you do need to get physical samples in at some point. And this doesn't apply just for power supplies. This is almost anything. So... Is the first thing you receive back from the, oh, you say you don't get physical samples all the time. So the first thing you get, do they like send you back a report of what they've found? Um, and then you look through that or, or do they get, send you a bunch of different documents of like the specs of the different power supplies they find or, or what? Yeah, usually just specifications. So, so the, uh, a purchaser would send my requirements document to a, to a supplier and the supplier would basically kick back and say, yeah, we've got this power supply. Here's the data sheet on it. That's something that they've already have prepared mm -hmm. because it's a product that it's a product that they sell and they want us to buy. So they just kick it back either, you know, through the buyer or sometimes I'm in the loop. So they just do it to me directly. Um, and then I can look at it and say, yay or nay, ba based on paper. Okay. First of all, you know, and that's just for like the beginning testing process. That's not like the final approval for the thing at that point. Oh yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Okay, cool. So then let's say you have some physical specimens, I guess is the word to use. Oh, specimens. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Samples, samples. Sam or samples, yeah. Yeah, there you go. Um, so let's say you get back some of them. Um, then what's the next step in the process and, and what does writing look like? So the next step in a component approval would be to, you need to specify what you need to test for the approval of a component. Mm -hmm. So this is this is actually probably the the hardest part is thinking of all the things you need to verify to approve something like a power supply. What are all the things you need to check 
to make sure that it, this thing is 100% okay to use in a product. And, and so you'll start, and hopefully, you know, you're not starting from scratch. You can base your test on previous work and things you know, and you can get input from your peers and, and, and there's obvious things. Um, and you just start from there and you just kind of keep adding to the list until you feel like you'll have a level of confidence that you can approve the power supply based on when this you, test you When you say derived. to a list, is this like a, a formalized list of, of things that you're, you're proposing to check? Like, or, or is this um, just kind of a mental checklist that you're thinking about? Oh, no, you have to write this down. Uh, whether you do it in like a, you know, in like a Word document or an Excel spreadsheet or something, it doesn't really matter, but it does need to be listed down and written down on paper. Because the idea for this would be for somebody, whether it's you or a technician or anybody else, you should be able to hand somebody a power supply sample and a test procedure and say, do this. And then they do a bunch of measurements and they do a bunch of tests and then they hand you back results. It doesn't matter if it's you or if it's somebody else, but it's, I should have used that word earlier. It's a test procedure you're really writing. So that's like a list of instructions, like first, next, then that sort of thing. Yeah. And this is another document that depends on your audience. Um, hopefully you've, the person doing the testing is familiar enough. You don't have to tell them, plug it in step two, turn it on step three, you know, like this is hopefully the person doing your testing is more than likely a technical person. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to list out every little step. Um, you can just say measure the amount of Hertz that does this when you do this or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Measure, measure output current at this voltage. How much load can you pull? Things like that. Yeah. Does it, you know, does it recover safely when you short it out? Things like that. Got it. So how many tests would you say happen on a power supply sample? It, that's an interesting question because for something like a power supply and with many other components, you will do the same test under a lot of different conditions. Mm. So it's like, I want to know how much current can I pull out of this power supply at a certain voltage? I'm, I'm giving the power supply a certain voltage. I'm giving it, you know, 90 volts AC at 50 Hertz or something weird, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and I want to know, well, how much current can I pull out of it in that scenario? Is my device going to shut down in that scenario or what's going to happen? Mm -hmm. And, um, but so you do this test, but you do it at many input voltages and you might do a couple dozen, but it's the same test. Okay. So, so types of tests, um, I would say maybe, you know, 10 or so types of tests, but then within each of those types of tests, you might do 20 or 30 different test conditions. Got it. Okay. So then <clears throat> let's say, let's, let's, let's imagine both scenarios. Let's say, let's say in uh, first scenario, you have, you hand it off to somebody and they do these tests for you. What does the document look like that you get back from them? Um, hopefully it's just a, a spreadsheet full of numbers, you know, is, is perfectly acceptable. Yeah. If, if, uh, if they've had to deviate from your test procedure anyway, that's important information to know. And that would just be like uh, an explanation in a box somewhere on the spreadsheet or would you yeah. like a supplemental? Um, it, it really, it, 
it's not a formal thing. It's just sort of however. Okay. You know, so somebody follows your test procedure, but they say, well, this step doesn't really apply, or I can't do this. This thing broke, so here's here's an exception to the procedure. Um, this didn't really apply in some way or another. So you have to specify, you know, this is different somehow, and you really need to spell that out. Okay. Uh, you know, you, 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 you've specified a procedure. That procedure broke down in one way or, or another, or the test fell apart. So you need to say why. Got it. Okay, and then the other scenario is that uh, you perform the test yourself. Is it a very similar document that you're making? Yeah, hopefully. I mean, I, I sort of I hold myself to the same standards as I would at like any technician, and I would write the test as if I was giving it to somebody else, even though I may be the one reviewing it, because you never know when somebody might review it in the future. Right. Um, so, so documentation like this is actually very important. You need to, you know, spell out your your test setup, the results, any different differentiating factors that might have occurred and and what your overall results were yeah so it sounds like one of the biggest problems then is just assuming that the audience is going to know information or assume that you know what you're talking about and so you'd leave it out right right because somebody may want to use this same power supply a year from now and they're not going to know who to talk to about it but hopefully they'll be able to find this document somewhere in whatever corporate internal file system you have Right. You know, you, you store all your test results somewhere. Somebody could pull this up and say, hey, look, they've already tested this thing. Here's the results. We can use that. Just a, it's a really useful thing. So it cuts down on duplicate work. Right. Yeah, that's a really interesting way of thinking about audiences. Like it's just some random person a year in the future who you don't know and they don't know you, but they've got to be able yep. to understand everything and know exactly what you did. Well, and uh. I would say in engineering, we're also so busy and we do this so much that that random person a year from now, maybe you, and you don't remember anything about this test you did. And so it's really nice to be able to review it and say, oh yeah, I'm really glad I wrote down this detail of which, you know, AC supply I used because that one had a problem. And so now all these tests are invalid or something like that, you know? Yeah, that's, that's even more interesting. I really like that point a lot. You, you, you may be your own future audience and you got to take care of your future self in a lot of ways. It seems odd, but it's very true. You know, it's sort of, it's the same concept that like you use in a lot of different industries or occupations is just note taking, mm -hmm. you know, um, it, it's just sort of future proofing your, your own work and your own knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. That's a great point. Okay. So where are we at? Um, we've, Let's say we've done all the tests that need to be done. You've got all your data collected um, from the power supply sample. So now what's next after that? Is it like a proposal of like saying, here, we're going to buy this one, or this is what I think the best is, or, 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 or is it a report? How does that work? The approval process is somewhat informal for a couple reasons. For, for one, it's nice to sort of leave your options open. So say I've gotten five different kinds of power supplies and there's one that I like and there's one that I'm going to purchase. That company will find out, but you can sort of keep the others available as alternates. Okay. If, if, if they are true alternates. And it's sort of nice to not say, we're not going to buy from you. You know, you might buy a couple or you might string them along a little bit just because you need them as a backup. You know, what, what if your first choice 
stops shipping, they their shut their factory shuts down. There's a component that they can't get, so you can't buy a power supply from them. You need to have a backup plan. So, so the approval process is sort of a fuzzy thing, um, at least at the component level. Um, at, at at a certain point, there is a decision made. This is the one we're buying for mass production. So, but there's no. It's not really written down anywhere. I guess. Um, for every product, we we keep a bill of materials, and every company will have like some sort of uh, database system to keep track of all of their different products and the parts that go into each product. And as an engineer, you sort of manage this list of parts, and so you're the one who puts in this power supply for this product into the database, and that is what gets bought. Okay. Okay. So tell me more about this bill of materials. Then, what's that document? So it's not so much a document as it is a database. Okay. Uh, this is this is sort of a big topic. Um, has to do with configuration management. Um, this is probably something that most engineers will have to deal with at some point or another. And I kind of wish somebody had told me about it while I was in college. So maybe I'll tell you. <laughs> Good, yeah. Um, so I, I'm trying to think of where to begin. It's um, yeah. It sounds complicated. So, this question. So, let me ask you a question first, so I can wrap my head around it. Sure. Um, sure. So, a product has all these different components. Is the number of components that come together from different places to make this product? Is it in like the tens or like the hundreds or like the thousands or what? It could easily be thousands. Really? Okay. Um, well, I mean, it really depends, but some something with hundreds or thousands of unique components is not that strange. Hmm. Even in like a consumer product, you know, if you go to you go to the store and buy a desktop PC, it could easily have, I mean, probably in the low thousands of unique parts. Right. And those all have but, to be coordinated because they all may come from different companies, different places and all that kind of stuff. Exactly. Wow. Yep. So you need a giant database to keep track of all this stuff. So for my company, we, you have what's called a finished good. And that's what is on the box, you know, in, in a box at the store. Right. You know, so it's what leaves the factory and the finished good will have a bill of materials and it will include things like packaging, styrofoam and the product itself, which would be called the final assembly. So the final assembly has its own bill of materials. We call them bombs for short, although I hesitate using the word bombs in, you know, public <laughs> setting, but, right. uh, anyway, yeah, bill of materials is often called a bomb. So you'll, you'll hear, you know, people in engineering and operations talking about bombs, but they're not talking about things that explode. They're talking about parts. Uh, <laughs> so you've got a bomb for the final assembly, and that includes things like the metal or the plastic that it's made out of, and it's got the, the PCBs, and, and then the PCBs have bombs themselves. So it's, it's sort of a, it's a big tree of parts. Did you, and down at, did you already say what PCB was? Did I miss that? PCB is printed circuit board. Okay. So so you've got this giant database tree of all the parts that go into a product. And down at the grittiest level, you know, you've got your PCBs. And your PCB has some parts on it, like some resistors and capacitors. And you have you have an internal part number. You know, this is resistor number 5023. 
you've assigned it some arbitrary number, or maybe your company gives it a meaningful number mm -hmm. based on its value or size or something. Um, but then even then under that, you say, I want this type of resistor, but there's five or six different companies that make this specific resistor that we can use. And so you have, you have parts and then you have manufacturer parts underneath that, which are actually things you go buy and then start assembling all together. Wow. And this thing, it's all tied together with, um, with a hierarchy and drawings and documents that explain where things get put together. So there's parts on parts, inside parts, inside parts, and every single one of those parts could come from four or five different places and have different names and all that kind of stuff. Well, hopefully they don't have different names or the names are similar enough. Right. But but it's true. Like, you know, I, I want to buy a, you know, a, a one kilo ohm resistor. I can buy that from easily from 10 different manufacturers and they're each going to have a different part number that they use. So I, I list out their manufacturer part numbers and I assign them my own part number and I say, this is resistor number five, whatever. And that means it could be any one of these 10 manufacturer parts. Hmm. So you use a software program that's typically, it might be like a web interface or some sort of like spreadsheet type looking software thing that you can use to manage all of your parts. Right. So then that power supply, when you when a decision is made, is just entered into that database and it's just one piece of data of tens of thousands exactly. of pieces of data. Okay. That yep, exactly. And that and that's sort of how the back to the approval process. It's the power supply you choose is the one that gets listed into the bill of materials for this final assembly. So that during manufacturing, you know, they're procuring parts. They see this particular power supply, which you've assigned your own part number two, which refers to a certain manufacturer part. And they'll go buy that one. And then they'll see your drawing to see how it fits in the metal or the plastic or whatever and assemble it that way. Okay, so that drawing part, then that's a part that we skipped over. What, how does that fit in? Well, um, I'm going to punt that and say... That's a mechanical engineering job, and I'm an electrical engineer. Okay. <laughs> Got it. That's somebody, that's somebody else. You just do your thing. Yeah, I, I, I draw schematics, and I do testing, and I help with uh, PCB layouts, and I work with a great team of mechanical engineers who draw. Um, they make drawings for what the product looks like and how it fits together, every little screw and standoff. But um, that's uh, that's not something I know a lot about. Right. So up to now, I feel like we've talked mainly about like, internal documents, like main things that stay inside the company. Do you produce any kind of external documents, things that go outside of your company to other people? Hmm. Very rarely. Okay. I can't say I haven't, but I mean, the one would be like a requirements document where you would say, I want to buy something with these characteristics. Yeah. The other thing might be a, ah, well, this is sort of a different, different use case, um, or not use case, but this is a kind of a different scenario, very separate from like parts approval. So I've got a product that I have helped design and it's about to be released to market and we need to generate a user manual. Okay. So 
So my company employs a technical writer or a team of technical writers to, you know, to write a user manual. But at some point, they they need to write the specifications for for our product mm. and say, you know, for for my products in particular, uh, digital mixers, they'll say, you know, here's the frequency response, here's the, you know, the total harmonic distortion plus the noise specification, here's the input impedance, here's output impedance, things like that. Um, so I help them. I generate the data for them to help determine what the data in the user manual is. Okay. And that's and that's something the public sees, and that's something that marketing cares about because it's something uh, that helps define the quality of your product and where it fits in the market space. That's what reviewers are going to talk about when they see it and stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So it's so it's sort of, that's probably one of the more um, high profile things that my writing does go into, although it's not my writing directly. It's like I'm generating the data to support the user manual and even though i'm not i'm not writing the user manual directly at least in my case and so what does that look like is that just they send you an email that says hey we need this 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 and this and you email back or do you have is it a more formalized report type type of thing you you create uh at my company it's pretty informal because we're generally a pretty small team mm-hmm. I, I, I will also add um this is maybe a little off topic but uh my job is somewhat casual we make consumer products you can go to certain stores and find my products on a shelf yeah um and and so we're not held to like very strict standards at at my job you know we don't make medical equipment we don't make stuff for the military or stuff that's going into space Mm -hmm. or stuff that's going into cars um i'm not saying our products aren't safe and they're not to a high standard because they are but there are higher standards right and documentation becomes more and more important uh depending on what you're working on if you're a government contractor type of engineering firm you're going to be doing a lot more documentation than i'm doing right and it and it will be more formal yeah that's a great point i'm glad you brought that up um that's something i hadn't even really thought about because i've heard of a thing that's like iso 9000 or something like that is that yeah so like i know a little bit about that i don't work for one of those companies we're we're that casual okay got it okay so let me ask you this question then can you think of a specific time when there was a a misunderstanding or a frustration that happened um in writing in communication or a more generalized question is like where do those frustrations happen most often if you can't think of a specific instance sometimes there's problems that happen it, like if somebody else is doing your board layout, arranging all your parts and, and your wires how you need them, then sometimes miscommunications can happen there. Um, and it's really easy to miss really important details. But um, it's one of the cases where writing would help, I think, if we took the time and energy to sit down and write out detailed layout notes saying, this wire needs to be run in such a way from point A to point B, and it has to be thick enough to carry a certain amount of current. Hmm. You could you could sort of preempt some of the problems you might get from a layout engineer who is technical but maybe doesn't understand exactly what your circuit is doing. They're just placing parts and wires on a board. Um, so they're somewhat agnostic to some of the details. Right. So writing... So writing 
down layout notes as a way to communicate the intent of a design to a layout engineer. You can say, this wire needs to be really thick. This trace needs to be thick. Um, don't put any vias, which is where you have a, a copper trace on one side of a board and maybe it jumps to the other side of the board. So you use a via to go from layer one to layer two sort of a thing. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, don't don't put this trace through any vias. Um, that sort of a thing. I, we're dealing with some problems at work right now where the layout engineer um, did some things that would normally be okay, but in these, like, couple particular situations kind of mess things up a little bit. So now we have to fix them in another revision. Mm. So, so what I'm understanding is that... Uh... Most of the time, you'll just rely on a schematic. Like that's the main thing that gets transferred from you to the layout engineers. It's just a schematic. Um, and you're saying so, like they aren't accompanied by some kind of like paragraphs or sentences most of the time. But you're saying if they are, then that can overcome some of the, you know, yeah. obstacles or, or frustrations. Yep. But it's not. And, but it's not general practice to do that. Well, it should be. I'll say that. It, I, I would say maybe at some engineering firms, it, it should be, or it is. It's just at my company, we're a little bit more lax. Yeah. But it's something that could help. Um, okay, let me ask you this one. Um, so if you could travel back in time and see David Hurlbut in engineering school early on, what would you, mm. what would you tell him about writing? Oh, about writing. Yeah, sure. That's what this is about. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. I, you know, I remember taking technical writing in college and, and writing lab reports for my classes and they would always say, write in the passive voice, you know, don't use any pronouns There's, you know, you don't use the word, you know, I tested this, you say this was tested, mm -hmm. you know, I, I tested the device or, or sorry, uh, not that you say. You say like voltage was measured at 90 Hertz for this thing. And this was the result or something like that. Steven, you would never say that. That doesn't even make sense. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. I was just giving you a hard time. Right. No, I um, <laughs> you know, so, so you use the passive voice a lot. I don't know if this is something you teach, but you know, you don't, you don't say I and we, you don't really refer to the team. There's, there's no, you try to avoid personification. And for me, you know, I came from sort of a creative type family. Uh, you know, I was much more into creative writing in high school and things. And so it's switching this to this passive voice where you're not really using pronouns was a little bit difficult, but um, I find myself doing it more and more often just naturally now. And it's a little weird, but you do get used to it. And I see that it's it's important to remove some of the subjectivity out of the writing because in engineering, I think the the facts are what's important. You don't want to say, well, these are the results, but here's what I think they mean. You know, you're, you're allowed to interpret results, but you don't necessarily put it in writing unless it's fact. Yeah. Or is there a chance to like make it clear that it's, it's you thinking about it and not, because I think there are ways to write it in which it gets fuzzy about whether it's what you think about it, what happened, or what actually happened. Um, what what I've done in the past is I'll I'll sometimes add a section at the end of a report, and I'll say something like, 
recommended future action. You know, and, and I can still leave myself out of it, you know? Yeah. You sort of want to be selfless about it and just say, this is this is sort of what's going on, and here's what needs to be done to fix it without bringing opinion into it, even though it sort of is your opinion. Do you refer to the data a lot? That's kind of what I'm imagining in my head. That you say, the data show this and this and this. Yeah. 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 Yeah, you can do that. Absolutely. I mean... And, and at some point, I mean, and data usually just points to facts, not not always. Sometimes it's hard to find a fact out of data. But, you know, if I'm testing a power supply and it craps out too early, then I'll say, you know, this power supply sample was unable to provide the current required. And so it's not a viable solution. But that, or, but or, or an example of where you would cross the line is saying, if you were to like take that and say, and that's because Gamma Plus Company that we bought it from is a bunch of losers, and right, you right. Know, and like they don't care, and so we need to cut our ties with them for everything because they're awful or something like that. Right. Got it. Yep. Yeah, yeah. You wouldn't say stuff like that. Well, yeah, I know. that's an um, version, but I'm sure you could like. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the other thing I would say to a younger me who was in school was, um, at least for electrical engineers, I would say it's, there are some data sheets out there that are hard to read, but you do get better with experience and you start learning about how thing, how certain components are specified and that the language and the words they use actually maybe carry a little bit more meaning than they seem at first um maybe like the word ambient like an ambient temperature mm -hmm. a lot of a lot of components are specified to work a certain way at a certain temperature and if you exceed these temperatures then maybe the component will start to break down or malfunction it's not specified you know you, you don't really know what's going to happen and this is important for designing things that are going to go into cars where things can get really hot or if things can go into space where they can get really cold you know, temperature becomes really important. Even in my field, it's still a concern. Um, even just on a printed circuit board, you get a bunch of components. They can get pretty hot. So you have to um, you have to take like temperature into consideration. And you start learning about, well, this part says it can operate up to 85 degrees C ambient. Well, what does ambient mean? Mm -hmm. Does that mean, you know, 12 inches away, one inch away? 0.1 inches away from this component because the component is, you know, five by five millimeters big, right. you know? So it's like, what, what is ambient here? It carries a certain meaning. And I mean, really it just means far enough away that it doesn't matter, you know? Right. But you start getting into the, into the details of reading certain data sheets and you'll find that certain words matter more than others. Mm -hmm. And that just, it, just, it comes with experience and reading data sheets. Right. Wow. Okay, man, I just learned a whole lot. Um, yeah, I think that's all, right. all the questions I have. Okay, back to me here in the office. Uh, we're almost done with the interview. I hope you've enjoyed what you've heard so far and learned as much as I did. To end this, I just wanted you to hear one last thing that David told me about writing after he had turned off uh, his recorder. Everything always good happens after you turn off the recorder. 
I'll end the episode at the end of uh, this next quote. Thanks for listening. This is Writing Questions, where we explore the role of writing in our lives and cultures, and we'll see you next time. You know, it's not, it's not really painful. You know, you, you try to keep things short. You do it quickly. You can't spend a week writing a document, you know. You, and it doesn't have to be perfect, and you include charts and graphs and pictures and diagrams if you can, so you don't have to explain things. You just show it in a drawing if you can and, you know, just be done with it. Yeah. Anyway. But but done is better than perfect is the phrase that yeah. I like to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.